Thanks, thank you, thank you. You can grab a seat. So we are in week two of a six-week series called Altars of Worship. And uh, throughout this series, we'll be unpacking almost like a deeper understanding of what it means to worship, what worship is, and what it means for us to actually live um, worshipful lives. And so one thing we need to understand about the Bible is that it's often kind of treated as this manual of ethics and doctrines where uh, in reality, it's actually and supremely a manual of worship. And so I shared last week this quote to kind of frame our series, and I'm going to read it one more time, uh, from a, a Scottish theologian named James Torrance. He says this in describing what worship is. Christian worship is, therefore, our participation through the Spirit in the Son's communion with the Father in his vicarious life of worship and intercession. It is our response to our Father for all that he has done for us in Christ. And so what's really important to understand is that Christian worship is Trinitarian. It's a kind of big theological word. I'm going to describe that. And so a Unitarian view of worship, Unitarian being one, uh, Unitarian view of worship is almost like what religious people have. I'm trying to almost like appease and please one God, where for us as followers of Jesus, having a Trinitarian view of worship is a gift where we get to participate through the Holy Spirit in the life and communion between the Son and the Father. It sounds like such a small difference, but this is, this is what makes, that sets apart Jesus and our faith apart from every other faith uh, in the world. And so, again, worship isn't just singing on a Sunday, which is what kind of Danny mentioned. Sometimes a lot of us Christians, we, like, talk about worship of, like, we talk about it like it's music and songs. Where it's like, man, the worship was, like, so good today. Or, like, oh, the worship sucked today. It's like, well, you suck. You know, it's like the worship isn't about you. It's about the Lord. It's for the Lord. It's not about you. Not to throw shade. Anyways, um, so last week we talked about the significance of Old Testament altars. And that kind of being the first kind of approach and vehicle of what worship is. And so today, um, we're going to unpack the importance of understanding Jesus as our high priest. And so we're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews, where, which is where Sharon read from. Uh, and it's really important to understand the role of the ancient high priest in Israel through the liturgies of ancient Israel, and ultimately what it means for us today. And so, unfortunately, we're in this, like, cultural moment where most Christians don't really have much of an understanding or comprehension or just an idea of what the Old Testament is. It's like it's more than half of the Bible. And this is kind of becoming an issue because it's going to deter us from truly understanding who God is. And so maybe for some of us in this room, maybe we've grown up in, in church and going to Sunday school, and we know the stories of, like, Father Abraham. We've watched Prince of Egypt. We know about Daniel and the lion's den. But when we hear, like, the phrase Jesus as our high priest, this title almost has little to no effect on us because we don't even know the role of a high priest in ancient Israel. And so for us to really understand what this means, why this is a big deal, and almost, like, rewiring how we view Jesus in the Godhead, triune life of God, it's important to understand the significance of Jesus being likened and, and paralleled to the high priest, the ultimate um, eternal high priest. And so, interestingly enough, when the, the author of Hebrews, um, there isn't a common, a full consensus of who authored this book. 
um, because of how it's written. It doesn't necessarily tell us that this was Paul because it's not really how Paul writes. And so whoever the author might have been, the person that wrote this letter to the readers, the readers had a background knowledge of the, old, of, uh, the Mosaic Covenant uh, or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so imp- it's important to understand um, that as, we, as this text that Sharon read or the entirety of Hebrews, um, the readers understood and knew the book of Leviticus, for example. And so specific, like we don't have time to unpack it today, but Leviticus 8, 9, 10, and 16 are very important to have in the backdrop of our minds to understanding priesthood. And again, the author is just assuming that the reader knows what's happening in the book of Leviticus. And so, again, as I mentioned, we don't know fully uh, theologians and pastors and all the smarter people than I do. uh, We're not really sure exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews. But what's really interesting about the book of Hebrews is in all of the New Testament and all of the writings, like the Apostle Paul authored most of them, um, it is only in the book of Hebrews that actually refers to Jesus as a priest, It's not mentioned in any of the other New Testament letters, only in the book of Hebrews. And for this author, we can kind of assume that this author is probably writing to a group of Jewish priests because this author, as he's kind of outlining that Jesus is this high priest, this author knew that Jesus didn't come from the tribe of Levi, that Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, uh, and we see this in the following chapter in Hebrews 7, 14, that Jesus' lineage, which we see in the book of Matthew chapter 1, doesn't come from this specific tribe um, called Levi. And technically, this disqualifies Jesus through the Jewish system. And so again, he wasn't technically qualified in this Jewish understanding of priesthood. Ten years ago, I worked at Aritzia. Um, I, was, I was waitlisted for my nursing program. It seems like a hard shift, but it's going to make sense in a second. And so I worked, at, I worked downtown at PC. I was doing stock, and then I moved to the distribution center, which is the warehouse uh, right by Production Way, right by the Costco there. And, um, and so if you've never worked in a warehouse environment, it's a little bit dangerous. Uh, there's forklifts. There's all kinds of dangerous things going on. And so you have to wear steel-toed shoes because it's just kind of a, a dangerous environment. And, you know, at some point, our management thought, you know what, we need a health and safety officer to kind of just be like the ambassador for safety and protection, make sure we're stocked with Band-Aids and whatever else. And so instead of like, I don't know, finding someone specifically, they decided to make this kind of like a vote. And so you had to be voted in, it seems like like tribal council almost, like survivor vibes, but it's like the entire workplace had to vote for who was going to be the health and safety officer. And what was even weirder is anyone can vote for anybody. And so even if you don't want to do it, you could get voted. And so if you get the majority of the votes, you're going to be the health and safety officer. And for whatever reason, I got voted to be the health and safety officer. And I did not know what I was doing. And so a lot of the time, you know, they would just kind of tell me what to do, but I, I didn't know what I was doing. And so, like, I kind of waste my days kind of, like, making sure we had, I don't know, we have enough Band-Aids and... But like, and then it, they quickly realized, I, I mean, I was up front, I didn't know what I was doing, but I got voted in, and uh, I quit shortly after, because I was like, I'm not qualified to do this, and, and, and the Lord, you know, called me to pastor, whatever, anyways. Anyways, why am I sharing this random story? Um, again, in this scenario, I wasn't really qualified, yet I got voted in, um, and the reason why 
Jesus' priesthood is important to understand as the author highlights. He, he is highlighting Jesus as the eternal high priest, which supersedes any priesthood based on membership. Keep that in the back of your mind. Um, and like I said, Jesus was not part of the tribe of Levi. And I might have lost you there. But this is significant um, because the tribe of Levi is the descendants of the first high priest, which is Aaron, which is Moses' brother. And so let's break down our teaching text a little bit. And so as what Sharon read, what the author is first um, outlining is the qualifications of who can be a priest. So let's look at verse 1 again. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So what is a high priest and what is their role and what qualifies them to be a priest or representative in ancient Israel? So we're going to look at two qualifications. So the first qualification we see in verse 1 is every high priest is selected from men or humanity, if you will. And so the author clarifies that within the Jewish priestly system, uh, this person is chosen um, and specifically chosen from a group of people, which is the tribe of Levi. And so in ancient Israel, there's a total of 12 tribes. And like I said, the tribe of Levi are specific descendants from the first high priest, which is Aaron. And so from Exodus 28, number 16, we know that the Lord appointed Aaron himself. The Lord appoints Aaron to be the representatives for the people uh, for the Lord. It's kind of like a valid, valedictorian role. I wasn't valedictorian. I don't know who has been a valedictorian, but we all know if you're valedictorian, you've been voted in. But it only works if you're part of that grad class, right? It doesn't make sense if it's an alumni. You can't be in a lower classman. Like, you have to be part of that graduating class. And so for Jesus, as the Son, because the Son has existed for all of eternity, we know that from John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, etc. As Jesus takes on the human condition in the incarnation, which is the Son becoming flesh, fully God, fully human, Jesus meets this first qualification. Without Jesus being fully human, Jesus would not have met this requirement, and thus means he can't represent humanity. And why is this important? Why is it important that Jesus meets this first qualification? And how is this related to our worship? Well, the author speaks to this a little bit more in the following chapter, in chapter 6, verse 20. Where our forerunner is, someone that's going ahead of us, Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Some of you are thinking, Melchizedek, what? Uh, Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews compares Jesus to this kind of peculiar figure that we see in Genesis 14, uh, and, his, and his name is Melchizedek, who was a priestly king. And if you've never ever heard that name or you don't know what I'm talking about, it's very interesting uh, because very little is known or recorded about this figure, Melchizedek, other than the fact that he was a priestly king and Melchizedek was the one who blesses Abraham and Sarah. Let's take a quick look. Genesis 14, 7 to 20. After Abram returned from defeating Keter-Relaimer, Keter-Relaimer, I think I'm saying that right, and the kings allied with him, this, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, communion. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. 
Then Abram, who gets renamed to Abraham, gets a rebrand, gave him a tenth of everything. So there's a couple important things to note here. Abraham tithes 10% of what he has to Melchizedek, kind of what Danny was saying. And so this is affirming Melchizedek's priestly authority as a representative of God. And number two, the priesthood of Melchizedek predates the Levitical priesthood. I might be losing you. So this is coming from the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible, uh, where we see all these laws and rules and systems comes from the book of Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus. Um, but that's when, like, you know, shout out Prince of Egypt vibes. Like, that's through the Mosaic Covenant. This is happening in Genesis with Abraham. And so what the author is saying is that Melchizedek and his priesthood is greater than both Abraham, who is referred to as the father of our faith within um, not even just Christianity, but like in Judaism and etc., and also greater than the Levitical priesthood, the, the descendants of Levi. And again, furthermore, the scriptures don't record any details about Melchizedek's past, his birthplace, or even his death. And so some theologians a.k.a. smarter people than I do, uh, kind of refer to Melchizedek as potentially being a Christophany. What is a Christophany? Christopher what? Christophany. So Christophany is an appearance or non-physical manifestation of Christ. Uh, an obvious example is on Saul, who turns into Paul, his journey to Damascus, where Jesus, in his vision, like stops him dead in his tracks and reveals himself to Paul. Again, this is not a hard fact. It's just a thesis from some scholars. But the bottom line is that the Old Testament figure of Melchizedek uh, is greater than the priestly figure, than any priestly figure throughout the Bible until Jesus. Okay, that was a lot, okay? Let me just quickly recap. With the fact and reality of who Melchizedek is, his superior role compared to Abraham, the father of our faith, um, to the Levitical priesthood as, again, priesthood being representatives of, of the people to God, um, this means that Jesus holds the ultimate authority of priesthood and is the sole representative for humanity. That's what the author is trying to get at, saying like, Jesus this, Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek. He's saying he is the highest representative. He is the sole proprietor on behalf of humanity that actually enables us to be in relationship with God. And there's more on Melchizedek. There's a whole chapter, man, on, in chapter 7, but we don't have time for that. So it is in Jesus, the Son of God, that we have someone who represents us on the behalf to the Father. Okay, let's look at the second qualification, verses 2 to 6. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is, and this is just talking about general priesthood qualifications, this is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, which means no one chooses themselves. They got to be voted in. But he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, referring to other parts of scripture, you are a priest forever forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so the second qualification to be a high priest is you offer sacrifices as an expiation for humanity. If you weren't with us last week, expiation is this, the act of making amends, making us right in God. 
So part of the high priest's job description in the faith community, so in the group of you know, ancient Israel, and as we kind of compare it to today, it's representatives on behalf of humanity. So in the role of high priest, there are two rituals that were exclusive to the high priest in ancient Israel. The first is entering uh, into the Holy of Holies in the, in the tabernacle. And so again, the tabernacle was like this portable tent where uh, worship happened, corporate worship, communal worship happened. And so then the high priest would make a sacrifice uh, on behalf of himself because he's a sinner and behalf of the whole community. The second exclusive thing that the, the high priest would do, which I don't think most people realize, and I didn't even realize until I read, uh, until I did my study, was consuming the bread of the presence. And so part of the, the, the role of the high priest was they get to eat some bread. No one else is able to eat this bread. So what's this bread about? Let's get this bread. Here we go. Exodus 25, 30. Um, and so God instructs uh, the high priest in Exodus 25, 30 that the high priests um, are to bring this specific like memorial food offering and they place it in the tabernacle. And uh, it was supposed to serve as a reminder for the people that they would remember what God has done for them, you know, crossing, you know, escaping from Egypt and, you know, splitting the seas and all of these things. It was just an act of remembrance. And so it was only the Levitical priests that would actually eat it, not just because, you know, they get like a cool, like, ability to eat, you know, cool bread or whatever. It was an act of symbolism. And so by the priest eating on the behalf of the community, representing everyone gets to eat this bread, uh, it's a reminder of God's faithfulness. And so next week, we're going to unpack the Lord's Supper. But during the Lord's Supper, um, Jesus connects this Old Testament symbolism of bread to himself being the bread of life. More on that next week. And so back to the high priest's first role. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would sacrifice two goats. Shout out Leviticus 16.8. So the first goat that is sacrificed on the altar, we talked about altars last week, um, was a sacrifice for their own sins to purify themselves. And then a sacrifice, and it also represented uh, the people that they were, you know, now right with God, that they could come before God in his holiness. The second goat that was sacrificed on the altar in ancient Israel was for the Lord. And so in this liturgical practice, the high priest also represented God. And, he, and the, the, there's a lot of like, not that it's fashion, but the outfit of the high priest was very specific. And so the high priest would wear kind of this, um, like, a, like a sash on the head, and it represented the Lord's name. And so in this act, the Lord both represented the, the high priest, so God is the high priest in this ceremonial kind of like activity, but also the actual sacrifice, the actual goat itself. And we see this in Exodus 28, 36 to 38. On a narrow strip of pure gold engraved the words, dedicated to the Lord. Fasten it to the front of Aaron's turban, again, Levitical priesthood, with a blue cord so he can wear it on his forehead. This will show that he will take on himself the guilt for any sins the people of Israel commit in offering their gifts to me, and I will forgive them. Do you see it? The foreshadowing of Jesus all the way in the beginning of the ancient liturgical practice of priesthood in the people of Israel. And in Jesus' eternal priesthood, he does not come to sacrifice a couple of goats. He sacrifices himself. That's why we have the phrases in Scripture, the lamb who was slain. 
It's an incredible foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to accomplish thousands of years ago. And we see this further unpacked in chapter 9. Here's what it says, and it's titled, The Blood of Christ. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. And Dave, you can make your way up as we kind of prepare to receive communion. Again, with Jesus as our high priest, he doesn't sacrifice a couple of goats, and he doesn't even have to do it multiple times because Jesus satisfies that first qualification, fully God, fully human. He doesn't sacrifice the blood of goats. He sacrifices his own blood one time because that's all that is needed, right? He With Jesus being our high priest, in understanding the priest's role in the community, he sacrifices himself on the behalf of humanity. But he doesn't need to do it for himself because he's sinless and therefore gives glory to God. And that's like one final payment. Mortgage paid in full on the cross 2,000 years ago. And so when we think about what true worship is, it's participating in the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus ascends into heaven, he says, don't worry, someone, like, I'm going to be with you just through the person of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of interesting grammar things in Greek because Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as himself in the grammar. And so he actually breaks grammatical rules to refer to the Holy Spirit as a person. So it's not this like, you know, neutral, like flowy spirit. He refers in the, in the Greek grammar as a person, as himself, which is really interesting. Um, not enough time today. But as we worship, it's participating by God's spirit. Jesus' spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, in the Son's communion and relationship between the Father. That's why true worship is Trinitarian. Like I mentioned, Unitarian worship is what religious people do. We're trying to just please and appease one God. No relationship. What sets apart our worship as followers of Jesus is that we're participating in the life of God. We are participating in the life of God. And so with this understanding of Jesus as the eternal high priest, Jesus is both the object of our worship, but also the leader of our worship. It's once you begin to wrap your head around it, it's almost like inception. When you first watch it, you're like, what did I watch? You gotta watch it like three more times. But once you start to get your head around, whoa, like I'm able to participate in the life of God because of Jesus, like his personhood is here. This is what the author of Hebrews is trying to convey in this really long letter. He's trying to cast fresh vision of Jesus to these people who have forgotten who, the significance of who Jesus is. That's why when you read the letter, high priest this, Melchizedek this, the entire letter is riddled with these words. Why? Because these so-called believers reading this letter have lost vision for who Jesus is. They had become religious people that do a thing, lacking of substance, hollow inside. They were just doing these liturgical things without understanding the new freedom that's happened and that is accessible through Jesus. And just like the ancient Israelites, and if you're not familiar, after their exodus out of Egypt, they, they end up wandering for like 40 years in the desert. And uh, maybe you're here and you're in a similar season. You're just wandering in the desert. You're, you're tired, you're fatigued. 
feeling like you're going nowhere. But when we look at the story, when you look back at the story of the Israelites in their wandering, why were they wandering? What led them to wander? I thought they were promised, you know, the, the promised land, which is the land of Canaan, but they were actually denied entry. Why is that? Why were they denied entry, which leads them to being in the season in the wilderness where they are stuck? It's because they refuse to keep their eyes on the Lord. And so when you go back and read that story, Numbers 14, 20 to 23, the Israelites had sent spies to just kind of survey the land, just kind of check out what's going on. And they saw like the people of the land and they were scared. And they talk about the people of the land being these giants and then they began to have this very small view of themselves and they compared themselves, the Israelites, to little grasshoppers. But there were two people out of the spies that were like, no, like, it doesn't even matter who's there. We've already been promised by God. But the issue is they were more fixated on these giants than they were on the promises of God. And that's what led them to not trusting God and compromising and saying, I don't think we can do this. And because of their lack of trust and lack of faith and really their gaze upon the Lord going astray, that's what led to their wandering. If we don't have our eyes upon the Lord, we're not gonna have any direction. That's when we feel lost in life. And I think there are too many Christians where we're in a similar place because we're not looking at the Lord anymore. And you know, whether it's we're fixated on our stresses, maybe we're fixated on temporary things that might give us relief from this stress. Um, whatever it is, it's preventing us from actually stepping into the promise that God actually has for us. And so the ultimate thing, if these Israelites had simply kept their eyes upon the Lord, they would have come into the promised land but because their eyes were fixated on the stresses and the issues of the things that were happening around them, they ended up getting lost for 40 years because they did not trust in God's promises. And so what the author of Hebrews is trying to convey to these almost like lapsed Christians who have forgotten what it is, what it means to follow God and, and the life that's actually promised for them, he's trying to give fresh vision of Jesus for these people. So the question for us is, do we need fresh vision of Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, we come before you today. Probably a lot of things represented in this room. And like even Danny was saying, maybe, we've, maybe we're in, in a good season of our life, but I'm sure there are people that are in tougher seasons. And so Lord, maybe for some of us, Lord, we have slipped into complacency. Maybe for some of us, we are just too fixated on the stress of what is going on in life. Whether it be relational stress, financial stress, work stress, whatever the things, whatever the giants in our life that are preventing us from keeping our eyes fixated on you, we just ask, Lord Jesus, that you would just come into our minds that you would give us an awareness of your voice, the stillness of your gentle whisper, Lord, whether it be on our commutes, maybe when we're just lounging at home, or maybe right now in this moment, Lord, that you just provide clarity, conviction. But I think above all, Lord, just an affirmation, Lord, that, that you want us to journey with you into the promised land because you have incredible promises for us. And so as we try to fix, fixate our eyes upon you, 
Maybe for some of us, we just need to look back, look back at what you've already done for us on the cross, that you are our eternal high priest, the sole representative of humanity where we participate by your spirit in a loving communion and relationship between the Son and the Father. Come meet us this morning. Amen.